make our way back to our seats, you can open up in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We are getting very close to the end of the Minor Prophets. In fact, I expect, if the Lord, of course, tarries, that we will get to the final section uh, here next week, and we'll look at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 next week. But before we get there, we need to talk about Malachi 3, 1 through 12. Now, there's not a break in Malachi's chain of thoughts between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But something that you're going to notice both this week and next week is the Messiah, the coming Savior, is much more in focus here. In fact, probably more than many places in the Old Testament. There's a few passages in Isaiah that are more Messiah-focused than this, but there aren't many. And so we're going to see lots of references to Jesus. We're going to see lots of prophecy concerning Jesus and a lot of really interesting and exciting ways. So we have that to look forward to, not just this week, but next week as well. Remember that Malachi, at least as far as the prophets is concerned, is probably the final prophet, final prophetic book. It's possible Esther or the book of Nehemiah are after this. Uh, But this is one of the last instructions that God has for his people. And so uh, this is another reason why Malachi is an important book. We're also, again, going to see many things that are going to come to fruition in the Gospels, not just the good stuff, which is the Messiah and Jesus, but we also, unfortunately, have some bad stuff. We have the beginning of the habits and the trends that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the unbelieving people are going to demonstrate in the Gospels. So we're going to see a lot of the same things that are on display in the Gospels. Now we want to actually begin tonight, not in chapter 3, but actually in the very last verse of chapter 2. If you're in your Bible, it should be in the same place. If you're on your Bible app, you'll have to click back a chapter. But we want to begin with this question that the Jews ask. I mentioned the last few lessons on Malachi, that Malachi chose to frame his book in responses to rhetorical questions. These were likely real questions or real statements that the Jews made. And these are responses that God makes to these questions. And specifically, the most important question that the Jews ask is where is the God of justice? The full verse, Malachi 2.17, reads this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Now, we talked about this last time. The Jews, when confronted with their sin and their problems, which is really what chapters 1 and 2 were about, things that Israel or Judah was doing that was not fulfilling God's law, rather than say, yes, God, we've got some things to work on and correct, Instead, they fired back some accusations at God. Well, God, it looks like that people that don't obey your law are doing just fine. And so perhaps God delights in evil and doesn't like good. That's what the Jews are responding to God's statements 
with. And literally, the word wearied there is a word for tiring. We get actually the sense that God is annoyed. He's frustrated with Israel. This is not a common way that God describes himself. And so I think we should take note of that. This literally frustrates God in their responses. It's annoying because they're not getting it and they're responding in the way they are. Now, God responds to this by saying, look, the God of justice is not only still around, I am the God of justice, but the God of justice is going to come to you. And so we want to talk about that. And that's, of course, where Malachi 3 verse 1, if you've already read that real quick, that's where Malachi 3 1 comes in. So in response, where is the God of justice? That's the question. This is where he is. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So where is the God of justice? Well, he's coming. Now, the New Testament authors give us some clarity to what Malachi 3.1 is talking about. We could, of course, probably put it together ourselves if we had to, but we don't have to. Scripture tells us what is being talked about here. The messenger that is being described here is, of course, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to bring a message and he is going to prepare the way for God himself. And Malachi 3.1 is actually quoted in all three of the synoptic gospels. We see it in Matthew 11, we see it in Mark 1, and we see it in Luke 7.27. So this verse was clearly understood by the New Testament believers as referencing John the Baptist and Jesus. And of course, with what we know from the gospels, even if they hadn't quoted it, we would have made the same connection. Now, this connects John the Baptist with yet another Old Testament prophet. Actually, when we look through our Old Testament and we look through our New Testament, we see all sorts of connections between John the Baptist's behavior. His most frequent connection is that of Elijah. He is like Elijah in several places. He has attributes of Elijah. He's actually compared to Moses in several different locations. But actually here in Malachi, the word used of messenger actually in Hebrew is the same word that makes up Malachi's name. And so really John the Baptist here is having some parallels drawn between him and Malachi. The reason that John the Baptist had to come was again to call on people to rededicate themselves to the Lord. Actually, if we compare what the book of Malachi is about and what John the Baptist was doing, Malachi and John the Baptist actually did very similar things. They called on people to repent of their old ways and to commit themselves to practicing the law, following the law the way God actually intended. And remember, John symbolized this with baptism. This is different from what we symbolize with baptism. Of course, we are directly mirroring and picturing what Jesus did for us by dying and rising again. Obviously, John the Baptist wasn't picturing that. It hadn't happened yet. He was encouraging people to cleanse the sin, ceremonially going into water, and rededicate themselves to obeying God, which is a great idea, certainly what Malachi was calling them to. John the Baptist is going to call them to do the same thing. After the messenger came, then we have the Lord. This is one of those passages in the Old Testament where we have a glimpse of the Trinity. It actually says in Hebrew that the Adonai, the Lord, which is clearly someone different from Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of hosts. So the Lord 
is going to be sent by the God of hosts. So this is a Trinity passage. We have Jesus, the Lord, being sent by God, the Father. And of course, we know that that is indeed the case. Jesus is the Messiah that the people are talking about that's going to restore things. However, Malachi says there's some bad news. And here's the bad news. When Jesus arrives, he's going to hold people accountable. In fact, verse 2 says this, But who can endure the day of his Adonai, Jesus' coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's scope, uh, soap. Excuse me. So Malachi is describing here both Christ's initial appearance but also his second appearance as well. We call this in the Old Testament mountaintop prophecies. This is where God gave Old Testament prophets a view of the future, but what he let them see were sometimes two events that would happen at separate times. The illustration is given that if you are standing on a hill looking at a mountain and there's another mountain behind it, you might only see one mountain. And that's kind of what's going on in Malachi here. He describes the coming of Jesus, but he doesn't distinctly describe a first and second coming. We, of course, know that John the Baptist precedes the first coming of Christ, and then Christ comes. But then Malachi launches into a second coming of Christ. When Christ comes the second time, he is going to hold people accountable, and he is going to cleanse sin and evil deeds from the people, which is in a direct counter argument to this idea that God is somehow rewarding evil and punishing good or the God of justice has disappeared. Jesus is the God of justice. He will bring justice with him. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was not concerned with justice in his first appearance. In fact, there's at least one very clear example where Jesus fought for justice in the temple. He drove the money changers out. This was a picture of what it's going to be like, but on a tiny scale. When Jesus comes back again, he is going to clear house. He is going to deal with the sin and the problems uh, in the world. But Jesus is going to restore the religious system of Israel when he comes back the second time. And he is going to reinstitute the sacrificial system, which is what Malachi describes. Of course, we know that he has not reformed the religious system. He has not reinstituted the sacrificial system. So this must be in the future. Now, we also hear from Malachi who the Messiah is going to judge. And we find this in verse 5. And this actually is quite interesting. It has a danger, as many lists do in Scripture, where we see the list and we perhaps stop reading the list. I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. But I want you to pay attention to who specifically the Messiah is going to deal with. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, God here is paying special attention to certain sins. Most likely, these were sins that were particularly prevalent at the time of Malachi, but I want to draw your attention to the last few sins that God mentions. We could summarize these as people who had dishonest oaths, uh, who were corrupt. Literally, they were lying in court 
to affect core outcomes. That's the technical meaning of the word used there. They were dishonestly paying their workers. They were claiming that they would pay certain rates, and then they were not paying those agreed-upon rates. And of course, more obviously, we have oppression of the weak. That's widows and orphans. Widows and orphans, oftentimes in the Old Testament especially, is used as an example of all people who needed special care. Of course, widows and orphans count for that, but it's broader than that. It's not just the widows and orphans. It's the weak in general. And, of course, finally, foreigners. He condemns the poor treatment of those outside of the Jewish community that was going on. These all are things that we perhaps would call social issues. Obviously, there's still a moral component to these. I'm not saying they're not moral issues. But these are things in society that God cares deeply about. This is a theme that we've seen in the Minor Prophets before, specifically when Johnny taught through the book of Micah. Uh, God is very concerned about how we treat our fellow men. He cares about this deeply. And when the Messiah returns a second time, he will fix the societal problems of our world. But in the here, here now... We, too, should be concerned about these things. We should be concerned about honesty, about making sure that people are paid fairly, about the weak being cared for, and about how people that are strangers in the community are treated. These are things that God cares about. People that don't do these well will be particular object of God's judgment. So it's something that we want to be aware of. We should notice when God gives us these kind of specific things that he's looking for. Finally, the unifying theme of all of these problems, which is quite helpful for us in our thinking, is that what brings all of these people together is, at the end of the day, they do not fear God. Fear in the Old Testament is not terror. It's not uh, perhaps what we think of around Halloween, time where you're jumping or you're afraid of God. God is not a monster, okay? He's not out to jump scare you. However, fear is really reverent obedience when you understand the real severity or the real importance of who you serve. God is the God of the universe. He has unlimited power. He has the right to judge, and we are all guilty. If you understand that about God, you are going to act in a certain way. That's what fearing God really means. It means obeying because you understand who he is and what the consequences are if you don't obey. And people who are doing these things and many others, at the end of the day, they don't fear God. And that's ultimately what we must do. We must fear God. Now, God then says probably one of the more famous things he says in the book of Malachi. There's actually lots of verses in Malachi that we hear regularly, primarily because the New Testament quotes them. But the next thing that we see is this line, and it's really intimately connected to everything that has just come. And I want to explain why. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob... Are not consumed. Now, God is still responding to this accusation from chapter 2, verse 17, that where is the God of justice? God says, I am still here. I am still the God of justice. But I want you to understand several things about me and why the fact that I have not destroyed all of you actually shows you that I haven't changed. I'm still the God of justice. Number one, of course, what this is teaching us is that God does not change. This is called immutability. It literally means the inability to change, God is unable to change. He can't do it. 
of course, he's perfect, so he doesn't need to change, but he's literally incapable of change. And that's a good thing, by the way. We don't want God to change. That would be really scary for a lot of reasons. Secondly, God still loves his people. He has not changed in his affections for Israel, which is why he is showing them mercy. Remember back in chapter 1, there was actually an accusation that God no longer loved Israel. God says, I have not changed. I still love Israel. Therefore, I'm showing you mercy and I'm giving you a chance because of the third implication. God has not changed. He still expects covenant obedience. When he gave the Israelites the law, he intended for them to keep the law. Now, of course, we understand that as sinners, they couldn't keep the law. We can't keep the law. Nobody can actually keep the law. But God expects covenant obedience. He expects Israel to attempt to obey, and they're not doing it. And that is going to have consequences. Judgment must occur. He has not changed. He's not forgotten their sin. He's not become a God who doesn't care about sin. He's only waiting and giving them mercy so that the Messiah can come. So he has not changed. He hasn't changed his opinion on sin. He hasn't changed his opinion on the children of Israel. And at the end of the day, that's the only reason they're still around. If God had changed in any way, then they truly would have been doomed and destroyed. That being said, as with all the minor prophets, that's not the end of things. God calls on his people to return, although the way he does that might strike us as a bit unusual. God's call for return is general, but his specific thing that he calls the Israelites to change is actually related to the topic of giving. Now, the Israelites are resistant to this. There's an implication in their response that Malachi records that they don't recognize how far they've strayed. Now, God actually specifically dives into the idea that they are robbing him and that one of the major steps they need to take to restore their relationship with him is to stop robbing him. Specifically, they were not giving the tithes that God had commanded. This actually leads to one of the interesting, most interesting things I think that God says in the Minor Prophets. He says this in verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, the one you've been holding back, you haven't been giving the tithe, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God actually challenges his people. He says, put me to the test. That is not something God says very often. This should, again, take us aback. It's not something he says. But he says, if you do what you're supposed to do, if you give the way you're supposed to do, put me to the test. See if I will not bless you. Now, this, I think, has some practical applications for us. But we want to be careful and we want to be clear about what is being said here and what isn't being said here. The law tithe, the 10% that God lays on the Israelites in the law, does not necessarily apply to Christians. It's not reiterated in the New Testament. This was a rule for the Jews. However, um, as with all the law, when God gives us a example in the law, it's probably a good idea to pay attention to what God is teaching. The entire law demonstrates God's character, and it also demonstrates good practices. So in the same way that we don't feel restricted by the food law, 
we don't necessarily have to give 10%, but God is clearly teaching a principle of giving, which is why many Christians choose to use God's number as their number. I think it's an excellent example to follow, and I think tithing at 10% is a great biblical example. It's not a requirement, but it is a great biblical example. However, the other part of what God challenges here, I do think as a New Testament believer, we should consider, are we trusting God with our resources? And if we do, is he still willing to do the same thing? Is he still willing to bless us and care for us when we give him our resources? I think the overwhelming answer to that in the New Testament is yes. Do you trust God enough to give him your resources? Are you trusting him in a manner like he challenges the Israelites to trust him in this passage. It's pretty interesting. It's also interesting that this is how God recommends they begin restoring their relationship. And I think the key here is that if you're willing to give to God, you're demonstrating you have trust in him. If you have trust in God, if you have faith in God, it's going to start to affect your other actions. The Israelites had many more problems than just not giving God their tithes. And yet this is what God chooses to focus on. And I do think there's some wisdom here. If you can trust God in some areas of your life, you can trust God in all areas of your life. You can begin to obey him in the things that he calls you to obey him in. And so in many ways, this is God's first step. He says, Israelites, how are you going to begin to restore your relationship? You're going to demonstrate your trust in me you're going to restore the tithes that you ought to be giving me. And you're going to fix all the stuff from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Again, the unfortunate reality is that the Israelites aren't going to do this. In fact, the Pharisees, as Jesus points out, eventually did perhaps give their tithes, but remember they did it in the most spectacularly wrong way that they could do. In fact, Jesus points out that the woman giving the mite is actually fulfilling this principle in a way that the Pharisees, who probably were giving away 10% of their wealth, were not because the widow was doing exactly what God challenged in verse 10. She was giving to God and trusting in God for her providence while the Pharisees and the Sadducees were giving to God to make a show out of it. So again, some people in Israel really did take God seriously here. The widow being a great example. However, the religious leaders, the elite of Israel, are not going to take this message to heart. And again, the gospel show us that. Now, we do have good news, but we're going to have to wait it till next week. Again, the Messiah is being built up here, and chapter 4 specifically is going to really bring an awesome conclusion to what the Messiah is about to do, and we'll jump into that next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to think through the book of Malachi, to think through this promise of Messiah. Lord, help us to be prepared, Lord, to obey you, to fear you properly. Lord, we thank you that you do not change, that you are still a God of justice, but that as a God of justice, you made a way for us to be justified through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice upon the cross. Help us to meditate on him this week. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ and eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.